The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number 158 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Jean Rupier. It is so good to be back in this chair and sitting back here with you. What a blessing it is to be back. Uh, Before we get started with this week's show, we've got a fantastic episode. I do want to thank a couple of recent reviewers, and I'm so grateful that uh, people continued to uh, give us reviews even after we wrapped up the show. So we really appreciate it. Uh, Let's see, we got reviews from... Listeners, uh, Codebode77, uh, Mgames3, BGLIX, Glicks, uh, Rocky Mountain Sunshine Podcast, my dear friend Jason Bringhurst, uh, GKKEL, and uh, just this week, Feline Friend CJ. Oh, thank you all for your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. It sure does help the the show to be found. But we are back with a regular episode for you this week. And my guest on the show, Tamara K. Anderson, what an incredible story she has and such a just triumphant spirit she is. I loved getting the chance to talk with her. That conversation is coming up. And this week in my Latter-day life, why am I back? (laughs) I'll tell you all about it. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today on the Latter-day Lives podcast, it is my pleasure to have not only an amazing author, speaker, podcast host, mom, wife, so much more, Tamara K. Anderson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sean. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to get to know you, and I don't know your story, so I get to kind of learn it uh, other than a couple little things I know, but I get to learn with the audience, which is always my favorite. So Tamara, before we jump into this life of uh, writing books and speaking, tell us where you're from and where you grew up. Well, I grew up, I was born and grew up on the East Coast in Northern Virginia, and Mm. my dad was a JAG officer, so he was in the Air Force, and that's what took us back East, and and that's kind of where I grew up, and I have four younger sisters and a brother that eventually came along, but yeah, we grew up back East. It was great. Awesome. Love love it. Were you raised in the church? I was. Mm. I was. Both of my parents are returned missionaries. And they were called to be very, very young mission presidents when I was young. So, All right. So we're going to have a lot to talk about with that. But I've got (laughs) one quick question before there. And that is, you live in Utah now. So you've obviously seen the church in Utah for a while. Talk about, you know, and without giving too much away, we're about the same age. So we grew up in about the same era. But uh, so talk a little bit about growing up in the church on the East Coast in the 70s and 80s versus what you see in Utah in 2021. Very, very different. Our ward was geographically ginormous. I mean, as a little kid, (laughs) I just remember it was huge. And so, you know, if we had friends, they lived, you know, 
30 minutes away, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe at least. And, and it was, it was a pretty, I think I was the only member of the, of the church mm. in my elementary school besides my sisters. Um, and junior high, I think there was one other girl and one other boy, but they were in different stakes. I think you really cling together back there. Mm. Uh, because they become your family, especially if you don't have family in the area. And we right. found that in our, in my married life too, that wherever we lived, um, we never lived close to family. In fact, we still don't now. Um, but your ward becomes your family. That's who you hang out with for, I remember 4th of July picnics where we'd watch <laughs> the fireworks over the Potomac River. And oh. it was just so, so amazing. But our ward would put together those big activities and we would all hang out. So it you you feel a sense of community and love within your ward family probably stronger than you do here in utah oh i love that love it how old were you when your father uh when when your parents became mission presidents i was eight years old and i was the oldest eight years old and the oldest that is so young to become mission president my dad was 36 <laughs> Does that like blow your brain? I'm like, I that's like so imagine. much younger than I am right now. I'm like, I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, I had a very young mission president, and he may have been mid 30s uh, or late 30s, but wow. But that was also, he was from Chile being called into Chile. Here, mm. your dad was called to Argentina. What was the mission? Cordoba. So, right Cordoba. in the smack dab of. Argentina. If you were to draw uh, a cross in the middle of Argentina, it would be smack dab in the middle. So do you remember uh, him sitting down with the family and saying, hey, guess what? Like, do you have memory of that? I do. I remember they they first knew that they were going to be called to a Spanish-speaking mission. My dad served in Argentina as a young missionary. My mom was a missionary in Chile back mm. when it was all one country was the mission, you know? (laughs) And uh, so they knew they were going to be called as mission presidents. And so they said, we're going to go to a Spanish speaking country somewhere and we're going to live there for three years. And I just remember thinking, oh, okay. (laughs) I think as a kid, you're just like, all right. Of course, not having any clue what that really entails, but. Right. So talk a little bit about uh, two things. I mean, first of all, being uh, an American girl who I assume didn't speak any Spanish no. in Argentina. <laughs> uh, and then secondly, just what, what it was like three years of your life, formative years, eight to 11. Yes. Uh, in, you know, being the daughter of a mission president. It was, it was challenging coming down there. And I remember we had a Spanish tutor who was teaching us Spanish. And then we went to a, a, an element, well, it was actually a school, it was a private school that's taught K through 12. Mm. And, and we went to Spanish classes in the morning. And then my mom pulled us out in the afternoon and she taught us in English. So we wouldn't fall behind. Thank goodness she'd gotten her teaching degree. So it, <laughs> it was, it was great, but it was really hard. We were like the only Americans in the school. This isn't Buenos Aires. This is Cordoba, Argentina, and mm. 
And so I remember our first day there, my sister Shauna and I went out on the playground and we had a mob of kids surrounding us. And she and I were just clinging to each other. It's like we were the new kids on the block and they were all, I'm sure they were being kind, you know, they were saying hello, you know, and and trying to speak the, the English that they knew. But I really wish that I could have just faded into the dirt and disappeared. I was not used to that kind of attention or anything like that. It scared us so bad. And Mm. I, (laughs) there's a really funny story. Um, We had, we'd been going to school for a little bit, but it was just, it was really stressful to try to learn the language so quickly. And Sean and I just got to the point where we didn't want to go. And so I remember one time we locked ourselves in the bathroom and we were, we had decided there was, was no way we were going to go to school that day. And it, my dad was there banging on the door. My mom was begging us to unlock it. We, we would not come out. And we lived in a mission home where the, the mission fam, the mission presence family lived upstairs Mm. And the mission offices and the mission home were all downstairs. Wow. And so (laughs) my dad ended up getting one of the missionaries to climb out on the ledge (laughs) of the outside of the mission home. And he came through the bathroom window (laughs) and unlocked the door for us. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) Because they could not get us to unlock the door. We did not want to go to school and be stared at like, ah. (laughs) Tamara, that is great. (laughs) It just shows it was hard. It was hard for us. Um, But we did grow to love it. One of the things that became a challenge for us while we were down there is they had the Falkland Island War while we were there. Yeah. And for those of you who do not know about the Falkland Island War, it was a a very short war between Great Britain and Argentina about the Falkland Islands, which are just off the coast of Argentina. The United States sided with Great Britain, who had been in possession of islands for a long time. And so when they did that, guess Mm. who Tamara became? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The enemy. Wow, I bet. Yeah. So that was very challenging. I remember people calling me names. I remember getting beat up at recess, Mm. feet stomped on and punched. And I think that might have led to us locking ourselves in the bathroom, actually. (laughs) Well, of course. It wasn't it wasn't fun. And it's like like a little eight, nine-year-old girl has anything to do with international politics. Hello. (laughs) Camera, how dare you side with the uh British? I know. I'm just like you as an eight-year-old. I know. It was it was kind of traumatic. Um, And I remember there was one girl in particular that was kind of the perpetrator of all this. And I remember my birthday was coming up and my mom said, who are you going to invite to your birthday party? And I said, well, I guess I'll invite my class. And she looks at me with those eyes like even. And she told me the girl's name. And I said, yes, even Mm -hmm. her. And so I just remember thinking that I needed to be a good example. Even as a young girl, as a daughter of a mission president, I needed to be a good example. And so I invited these people and they actually all came to the mission home. (laughs) 
How fun. my little classmates and we had a little party and I think just having people in our home and showing them love and concern. And, and of course you feel the spirit when right. you're in a mission home, right? Um, that it softened a lot of hearts. Oh, that's beautiful. So you finish off, you've got your three years, very formative, obviously. Uh, you're no longer hiding in the bathroom. You're ready to go back to the United <laughs> States. Did you move back to Virginia at that point? We did. We did. We moved back to Virginia. And I thought we would just pick up where we left off. And w- when we moved back, it was it was challenging. I thought going down was hard. But in reality, as I look back, coming back to the United States was actually harder. Mm. Because when you have left a culture like that for three years and immersed yeah. yourself in a different culture, and this is like this is before Google, you know, I, right, you, right. this is before email. So I wasn't keeping contact with my friends from second grade when I left. I'm coming back into sixth grade. I remember coming back and Michael Jackson was king when Thriller. we came back in 1981. Oh, yeah. Sure. And Prince. And so my classmates, sixth grade is a very... um it's a time when you feel insecure because your body is changing. For sure. And so I think a lot of kids, because they felt insecure, the easiest them f- thing for them to do was deflect attention onto somebody else that was different. That makes and I sense. was totally different. I had just lived three <laughs> years in a different country. And so they would come up to me and say, what do you think about Michael Jackson? And I'm like, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I didn't even yeah. know. Completely, completely clueless. We didn't hear about Michael Jackson in Argentina. Sure. He just wasn't the thing. I could have told you about the Spanish, the, the Argentine singers, but yeah. I didn't know anything about Michael Jackson. And so my sixth grade friends thought that was hilarious. And so I just became the brunt of all the jokes. Mm. And this happy, gregarious person that I inherently am actually kind of retreated into her shell for several, several years because I just figured, well, I can't trust anybody and they won't take me as I am. And so I'm going to hide. (laughs) Did that ever make you bitter toward the experience or toward the church or anything, or was it just a part of life? You know, it never did. Hmm. Um, I think one of the things that, that really got me through, um, was was knowing that God lived and loved me. I think mm. as I think back on those years in Argentina, um, one of the amazing things about living in the mission home and hearing missionaries talk and give their incoming testimonies, their outgoing testimonies, you feel the spirit very strong all the time. And so I think that seed of testimony had been planted in me. I felt the spirit. I knew God lived. I knew he loved me. And that carried me through some pretty tough years (laughs) into my teenage years where I just wanted to be at the back of the classroom and be a nobody because I didn't want to stand out at all. So you get through this difficult time uh, you're a teenager, 
you certainly know Madonna and Cindy Lauper, and you know, <laughs> like I said, we're about the same age, so I remember I know, those yes, years exactly. very well. I did um, start to clue in once I moved yeah, back. <laughs> sure, of course. Um, so, what were you into in your teenage years? Music. Yeah, I loved my my gifts seemed to lie in music, and so I was in choir, and I loved it. That awesome. that's where I lived as a, as a high schooler was in the choir room. <laughs> what a blessing because good mm-hmm. friends there too. I did. Um, so you finish up high school. What came next? Went up to BYU. I was so excited to go there and I was so excited. I got accepted, went up there and it was a phenomenal experience. Very hard. I think one of the challenges about going to BYU, and it's probably even more so now, is that here you are, top of your class, and you go to BYU, and everybody there is top of their class. Sure. And you're like, <laughs> I don't know what this is about. I feel like a drop in the bucket here. Did you adjust to Provo pretty well? I I was blessed with some amazing friends my, mm. my freshman year, and they became like my family And I felt more comfortable coming out of my shell as I was starting college, which was good. And I was, it was nice to find people that liked me for who I was. Oh, what a blessing. Um, You attended BYU for how long? Well, this is a funny story. (laughs) (laughs) I was one of those people who really enjoyed um, planning my life out. So as I started my sophomore year, at BYU, I had decided I was going to graduate in recreational therapy. Oh, cool. And and I was so excited. I prayed about it. I felt really good about it. And then I sat and I planned out every single class I was going to take, which semester. I decided when I was going to serve my mission. I decided when I was going to get married. I mean, I had this down to the T. And I remember one of my return missionary friends, you know, looking at me and just kind of saying, well, We'll see how your plan turns out. And me being a naive, you know, 19-year-old girl, I was like, it'll totally work out just the way I planned. (laughs) And so I took this plan to Heavenly Father and I said, Heavenly Father, what do you think of this plan? This is so great. I'm so excited about it. And I didn't get an immediate answer, but I vividly remember one of my roommates was having some guy issues. And so we went on a walk around BYU campus and we, we were just walking along. We finally got to a point where we stopped and we were overlooking the campus and we were just sitting there talking. She was talking, I was listening. And I all of a sudden heard this whisper in my mind, in my heart. And it said, Tamara, you're going to miss BYU. And I remember, I mean, wow. you could have, it was like somebody dropped a brick on me. I was like, what? So where did that take you? It took me home to Arizona. It's where my family was living at that point. And I went from BYU to mm. a community college, Mesa Community College. It was like going back to high school almost. Yeah. And I just continued taking classes. I had some amazing experiences there met some wonderful people. I loved the Institute program. I hung out there all the time. It actually helped me prepare for my mission. Mm, awesome. And, and so I think it was, it was that initial set of tests. And I think we learn from the examples of righteous parents. My parents had been willing to leave their life in Virginia and go and right. serve the Lord for three years. And so I learned by their example that when God calls 
you go. You may not understand all the reasons why, but you just go. Sure. Awesome. So you go on a mission. Where did you get called? San Diego, Spanish speaking. Uh, (laughs) So my Spanish came in handy. How was your mission? Fantastic. Let's see, the San Diego Temple must have been really new when you went. It must have just It was. I was actually a visitor center missionary, so I served at the Mormon Battalion Visitor Center. Oh, And I gave tours around the outside of the temple. Oh, those are two places that are so special to me and my family. Now, the Mormon Battalion Museum is a little different now than when you were serving there. Now it's multimedia and actually... Former guest of Latter-day Lives, Lincoln Hoppe, is one of the actors uh, in the video, uh, the interactive video there. Oh, the, um, that is so phenomenal. Oh, we took my amazing. family there, and yeah. it's it's amazing. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'm so glad you had such a cool experience. Uh, you get home from your mission. Where did you go from there? I felt it was time to go back to BYU. So, mm. so that test of let's remove her from what she'd been dreaming of. <laughs> You'll see this pattern replayed in my life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and let's let's move her somewhere else. And so I was able to return to BYU Very where cool. I met and married my husband. And we actually started our family. I, I graduated one month before I gave birth to our first child. <laughs> Okay, so before we get into kids, did you end up graduating in rec therapy? I did. I did. Awesome. Awesome. I and did know that was supposed to be my major. I'd gotten a confirmation on that, just not on the rest of the plan that I'd made. So immediately you jump into you're you're married and how soon after you got married did you have your first child? Let's see. I think it was just over a year after. So year quick. and a month. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's really quick. And you were still very young. And your children came with some uh, some challenges for you. We have two, three boys and one girl. Our two middle boys are on the autism spectrum. Mm. And that was something I had never considered or dreamed in my expectations of my life. Yeah. Um, I think when a child is born, you you certainly start imagining a future of what you think their life will look like. And as a member of the church, you, you dream of them growing up and serving missions and getting married in the temple and raising families, you know, eternal families. And when our son, Nathan was diagnosed with autism, it felt like somebody had just stabbed me in the heart Mm. crumpled it up, slammed it on the ground, stomped on it a bit and handed it back to me. Right. Because I, all those dreams, all those expectations of what his life and in turn, selfishly, what my life was now going to look like. I, I, and I don't know shifted. selfish. And, and I think that's part of the problem is we feel guilt for feeling yeah. selfish, but it's not selfish. You had pictures of weddings and grandkids mm. and BYU graduations and <laughs> maybe or maybe not would be in the future. I don't think that's selfish, but, yeah. but I understand the sentiment. I've been there. Uh, yeah. But wow, that's that's a big challenge. And so he was your second child. He's our second, yeah, our yeah. second son. Our, how, our oldest how, son is typical. Got it, got it. How how uh, how old was he when he was diagnosed with autism? His official diagnosis came at age four, which was quite late. 
Uh, we started noticing signs. I remember asking his doctor at his 18-month checkup, shouldn't he be talking more by now? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And I remember his response back then, and it, it just shows how far the, our doctors have come and learned about autism. But his response at that point was, some kids don't talk to those three. Right. <laughs> right. Whereas now, any pediatrician would be going, yes, he should be talking more by now. Yeah. You know, and they'd probably start looking at stuff like that. Like, let's let's rule this out. <laughs> now, had we, you already had your third child? Had you already had your third child when he got the diagnosis? Yes, we had. In fact, I okay. remember Jacob was probably seven or eight months old when we took him down to the developmental center to be diagnosed. And and I remember the developmental pe- doctor speaking to us and saying. See, Nathan doesn't give you eye contact like your baby does. Mm. And that was just, uh, I I didn't want to believe it for Mm -hmm. a long time. I think it took my heart and my brain a little bit to wrap itself around the diagnosis um, and to grieve those expectations that Mm -hmm. were never going to happen in my life or in his life. And sure. But the interesting thing is that Jacob was also diagnosed on the autism spectrum a couple right. of years later. So, And so now, had you already had your fourth child when Jacob was diagnosed? Yes. Yes. Okay. So was there, when Jacob was diagnosed, was there concern that you had three children oh, yes. on the spectrum at that point? I, uh, I was, I remember my, my fourth pregnancy was a little bit of an oops. We weren't planning that. <laughs> Because we were very, very overwhelmed with the three boys that we had. Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, Nathan still didn't communicate verbally with us. And so that meant there were a lot of tantrums in our house. He didn't like wearing clothes because of sensory issues. Um, he was a very picky eater. He, We were having a really hard time potty training him. And so he would often just poop on the carpet and smash it in with his foot. And this was a constant battle. They, kids on the autism spectrum, as you probably know, don't sleep very well. Yeah. And so we were, we were physically exhausted from not sleeping well. We were emotionally worn out. Spiritually, it felt like I needed to have gallons of of spirituality inside of me. And I, I had time for drops. I mean, I kept reading my scriptures and I kept praying because I didn't know who else to turn to um, when I was so exhausted besides God. I, nobody else in my mind, nobody else understood how hard it was all day long and all night long. Talk a little bit about going to church with your family. Oh my word! <laughs> now, now it's fine. okay, but back yeah. then, um, it was really a challenge. Um, one of the things that kiddos on the autism spectrum like is they like having a schedule. They like predictability, mm-hmm. right? And so, in my mind. Um, if I knew if I could just instill the habit that we go to church on Sunday, no yeah. matter what, that um, 
it would it would hopefully eventually sink in but there were <laughs> i'm going to get all teary talking about this sean i'm i'm there, there with you camera <laughs> there were some sacrament meetings that i remember being at the end of them and just crying it was mm-hmm. so hard it was hard to keep them on the pew it was hard to keep them quiet it was you know hard to find things that entertain them through sacrament sacrament meeting it was it was like going to battle every sunday it really was yeah <laughs> yeah i remember i mean having you know some some children with with challenges I remember any time a speaker would go long in sacrament oh. meeting, every minute that went long was like 30 minutes. It was just wrap it up and done right? with your talk, please. I know. Yeah. Was, it, uh, was it hard to let them start going to primary and young men's? Yes. Primary was challenging. I mean, at that point I was just like, you guys take him. I need a break. (laughs) So we were really blessed with some amazing primary teachers. Mm, Um, This is back in the day before they, they needed to have two primary teachers in each class, but with our kids in the class, they had the regular teacher and then they had an aide that stuck with our kid the entire Perfect. time. And so, you know, we had little bags full of fidget toys because they couldn't hold still. And of course, Nathan didn't un- always understand what was happening in the lesson because of his communication challenges. Right. Of course. And so, I mean, we had angels. Mm. in the form of ward members who just loved us through it. Um, I remember one brother coming up to me after sacrament meeting and just giving me a hug. And he said, it'll be okay. You'll get through it. And I just remember thinking, I don't know if I will, (laughs) you know, I was just like, I don't know. (laughs) So I felt that, is this worth it? You know, I had many times when I was standing in the foyer looking at that picture of the Savior and just thinking, help me. And longing for the day when the resurrection would make it so that I could communicate with my son. Yeah. One of them is more severe than the other. I don't know if it's Nathan or Jacob. Nathan is more severe than Jacob. Jacob is higher functioning now. He's doing amazing. Awesome. But Nathan is still, we still struggle communicating with him. He's now 22. (laughs) We got through those tough younger years. We found some tricks that he sleeps better now, which hallelujah. (laughs) Right there. What what told during these years? I mean, it's tough enough raising children. Mm. Uh, generally, and and all children, it needs to be stated, come with their own challenges. And you oh, know, yeah. uh, it's I, I'm you know, it's not like your other two children have necessarily been just total cakewalk and hey, it's easy. <laughs> Sometimes by comparison, maybe. But you know, um, I remember one time my husband looking at me and saying, um, "Is there such thing as a normal child?" <laughs> <laughs> And there's really not. I mean, there's just not. Every child has their own blessings and their own challenges. 
what uh, what if any toll did this take on your marriage um, during the formative years, as well as how in what ways did it strengthen your marriage? Oh my goodness. We, my husband and I have been really blessed that we have a good friendship, a good relationship. Um, There were times when it was challenging, like Justin was much more ready to accept the diagnosis before it happened, whereas I really fought it. And, And so there were times that we were at different stages in what I call the grief process, the grief cycle. And I think we had to just give each other grace um, and understanding that I may be at this point, but they're at a different point in them processing whatever is happening here and just being loving and understanding. Um, One of the things that became critical, and I mean critical for us in our marriage, was um, getting away on dates together. Because we were stressed all the time and I needed to get out of the home. I was a full-time homemaker, a full-time juggler of these kiddos on the spectrum and two other typical kids that had their own challenges. And, And so we made it a priority that we would go on dates. We found a young woman in the ward that we could trust with our handful of children and she was she became an angel for us um she watched our kids while we went on dates and later i even hired her as a nanny to be with me in the summer times because having them home all to myself during the summer it was completely overwhelming so it really took at least two people to Mm. handle and Uh, Jacob at that, when he was younger, would just run straight towards danger. And he was brilliant and fast and he could get over fences and outdoors and into people's yards with pools or into the street. I mean, so it really took at least two of us (laughs) to, to handle the the four that I had. (laughs) (laughs) And so you can laugh about it now, which is, I can laugh about it now, but at the time it was awful. (laughs) And what did all this teach you about the atonement and about the savior going through these years? Man, You know, there, I, I, I learned a lot about true faith. Mm. When Nathan was first diagnosed, I remember thinking, well, we'll just get him a blessing and he'll be healed and we'll be good. (laughs) (laughs) And that was seriously my faith. I knew, I knew, I had no doubt that Mm. God could heal him. I'd seen enough little miracles in my life. I knew that could happen. But what I didn't understand was... Uh, what I call the but if not clause. There was a talk in general conference that came at a very, very um, pertinent time in my life where um, Elder Simmons of the 70 talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going before King Nebuchadnezzar and and him telling them that they had to worship his idol or he was going to throw him in the fiery furnace. Mm. And he said, our, they said, our God is able to save us. They had faith like I did. He can save us. He can do total miracles. And then they said this. But if not, we will still not bow down and worship thy idols. 
So they knew God had a choice. Yeah. He could either save them or perhaps he wouldn't. And either way, they would still believe in him. Gosh, that's awesome. And I remember listening to that conference talk. And it hit me right in the heart. And I realized I couldn't say that yet. I couldn't Mm. say, dear God, I love you. I believe in you. And if you choose not to heal my kids, I was like, I don't even know what to do with that. Mm. And it was, it was, it was a real eye opener for me that my faith needed to become deeper and my commitment to thy will be done um, needed to become stronger. Mm. And so I had to learn to rely on God's ultimate wisdom and his, that I had to trust that what he could see coming from this, this purification process of Tamra would be the right thing in my eternal progression, which at the moment I didn't want that. (laughs) I didn't want that that. at all. No, thank you. I'm passing on this trial. Thank you very much. Where's the easy button? (laughs) I don't know. I I, I really, I really was praying, trying to pray away the one thing that made me grow the most. Wow. So all this takes you on this journey of all this incredible learning and understanding and a greater uh, portion of love and acceptance and so many lessons. At what point did you decide, uh, hey, this this could be a good book? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So that was not my idea. (laughs) The idea was originally planted by my sister-in-law. And she, one day, as I was telling her some of the lessons that I was learning going through this process, she said, you should write a book. And I just thought, ha, like I have time for that. (laughs) You know my life. How could you? (laughs) I'm like, when do I have time to write? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. But she planted the seed. And over the ensuing years, as we figured out solutions to my children's challenges, as I grew in faith and and started to see how God was helping me in my life and the things that I was learning, um, I began to feel these promptings. It was like Heavenly Father just kept poking me. You should write that book. So writing a book is harder than you think. <laughs> I th- see, I think it's super hard. I think it's really hard. I, 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 in my naivety, thought I'm going to write this thing. I finally told God, fine, I'll write the book. <laughs> yeah, you got me. So I, I started writing. I kind of got to the point where I, I, I knew I needed help. I knew I needed editors. And I tried finding one. And I couldn't find one that I jived with. And I remember having a really frank prayer with Heavenly Father at that point and saying, if you want me to write or publish this book, I need you to help me open some doors here. 
Mm. And he did. He really did. He the, like within the next week, I saw a post on social media by um, international bestselling author Richard Paul Evans. And he said, I'm doing my first ever premier author training. And it happened wow. to be 40 minutes from my house. And I thought, oh, <laughs> it was like God said, there you go. <laughs> There's your answer. There's your door. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's so great. So and tell, us, just, tell us the title of the book. My book is called Normal for Me. And then mm. the subtitle is called Learning to Love and Accept Life Detours with God's Help. <laughs> oh, what a blessing. And when was the book published? I published it two years ago. Awesome. Actually, maybe it's three years ago. <laughs> I gotta think. <laughs> no, it was two years ago. <laughs> and if it's uh, if it's and it's available on Amazon, if people it is want available to... on Amazon and Deseret Book. Oh, I hadn't had Deseret Book. Fantastic! I and how's, do. What's the response been to the book? Oh, I have had so many amazing stories. It does talk about my journey with my kiddos on the autism spectrum, but I have had people that have just normal, typical children read it and say, I loved this. I needed this. <laughs> we, we all have curveballs, you know? I mean, yeah. life is, that's what life is. Life is full of curveballs. And is Amazon the best place or Amazon, I guess, and Deseret Book, both? Absolutely both. Great places either. to get it. <laughs> and I want to talk about this initiative that you have with getting this book out to uh, especially families um, whose children may uh, have autism. Talk yes. a little bit about that and uh, and what you're doing. Oh, thank you for letting me tell you about this. It is really neat to be able to produce a book like this, and you really want it to get into the hands of those who need it most. And oftentimes people with kiddos on the autism spectrum, um, because they're spending so much money in therapy and other things, they often don't have time and money for things like books <laughs> mm -hmm. that might that might help. And yeah. so we've decided that we are inviting people to donate copies of my book, and you can do that on my website. and And then we get them to people who who want and need the book for free. And so, if you're interested in either donating a book or getting a book for free. Visit me on my website, Tamara K. Anderson with an O Anderson.com slash free book. <laughs> what a great thing to do. And so how, how much is that for people to donate to get the book into somebody's hands? You can donate for as little as it's basically $10 a book. I'm pretty much doing it for cost because shipping and handling is included in there. Wow. And, Amazing. Um, and then as if you as you order more books the the price goes down so if you order five it's a little bit less if you order 10 it's a little bit less so all right so absolutely. this this led to something else very near and dear to my heart which is a podcast you are a podcaster now I tell am. us about your podcast oh wonderful my podcast is called stories of hope in hard times mm. and I kind of like you, I interview people from all different walks of life. I interview just general Christian and so I've interviewed people who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and some who are not. And we just talk about the struggles that we experience in life and 
how we get through them with God's help and the lessons we learn along the way. And it has just been so amazing and so fun. I mean, I, I wouldn't be in my third year of podcasting if I didn't love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And that has led to you speaking and to kind of being a an advocate on these topics of finding hope through Christ, as well as uh, you know, people with with children with uh, with different types of learning disabilities or struggles. It's pretty awesome. Did you ever think that your life would be at this point? No, no. And it's interesting as I look back on my life now, I look back on that younger Tamara who was begging God to take this burden away. And I almost want to go back and just give her a big hug and just say, this will be for your good. I know you hate it right now, (laughs) but this is a good thing for you. And you're going to learn lessons you wouldn't learn any other way. And you'll get through it and you'll survive and you'll be okay. And finally, tell us how the boys are doing now. Oh, you know, they are doing so good now. I could not have predicted or imagined where they are right now. Um, Nathan is finishing up his last year of public education, and we have learned some super basic uh, communication strategies with him. We learn if we write something down on a piece of paper, he understands it better than if we say it out loud. And so if we need to give him choices, we often have to write it very, very simply, and he'll circle which one he likes best or point to which one he likes best. Um, some verbal communication, very, very simple. We've learned that a little bit of sign language that, that helps him because he's a very visual learner. Awesome. We're not sign language experts by any means, but he is doing really well. We've trained him that he doesn't come out of his room until his clock says 6 (laughs) a.m. That is magical. (laughs) That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And then Jacob is a senior in high school now, and he is amazing. He has blown our expectations out of the water from a kid Mm. who used to run towards danger and had to take speech and OT and all these things. He is doing fantastic. He's in all regular education classes. Wonderful. And he is a computer whiz. In fact, he is working right now. He has two class periods released where he goes to the technical college right next to us. And Mm. he's getting certified in computer information systems. And he's going to do some cybersecurity training this summer. I mean, he's brilliant. (laughs) Wow. That is awesome. I I never would have thought this. Oh, that's so great. So now we definitely have listeners who are young mothers or young fathers who are either finding out, have found out, or will find out that their child has a learning struggle, has uh, an impediment of some sort, has a health problem, or maybe is just such a handful, or maybe it's three under the age of five or whatever. And, and right now are thinking, I'm never going to get to the point where Tamara is Looking back, now that you have hindsight, what advice do you have for those, especially young mothers, who just don't don't think there's going to be, you know, that it's always going to be exactly like it is now? What advice do you have for them? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, 
I want you to believe that God has something amazing planned for you and that life will get easier. It will get better in many regards. I don't want you to give up hope. I want you to cling to the promise of hope. And the way you do that is by clinging to the Savior. Um, a scripture verse that became my mantra during those super tough years was in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The point is you cannot do it on your own. It's too hard. But you can do it with, with the help of your Savior. Well, this has just been amazing. It's been so good getting to know you. I want to remind everybody, uh, Tamara, which is T-A-M-A-R-A, K. Anderson with an O, TamaraKAnderson.com. You can find out about the book, uh, about donating uh, toward the book, the podcast, all those things uh, are available there. And I assume that people can just reach out to you through there. Uh, as well as you're on social media, if they want to find you on Facebook, just search for Tamara K. Anderson. This has just been phenomenal. I appreciate the time that you took. Uh, we're going to wrap up with the, the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, uh, Tamara, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Oh, being a member of the church means everything to me. Um, I have learned and have such a deep appreciation and love for Jesus Christ. He has walked through me, through my own personal Gethsemanes. He's carried me. I, I love him, and I'm so thankful for him. And I am so, so grateful for the scriptures, which teach me that um, imperfect people throughout all ages of time have had to go through the same struggles I have and have given me glimmers of hope as I read both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl Great Price. I love the scriptures. They, <laughs> reading those have given me those drops to get me through the day, even if it was just one verse at a time. And Another thing I absolutely love is that we have a modern day Moses leading and guiding us. Mm. And I am so thankful and testify that our prophet is indeed the Lord's mouthpiece on the earth today. I love President Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Fantastic. She is a podcast host, a published author. She is a speaker, and she is the mom of four really special children, Tamara K. Anderson. Thank you for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. Thank you for the opportunity. And my special thanks to Tamara K. Anderson. What an incredible soul Tamara is. I so thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. Tamara, thanks for all the good you're doing in the world. And this week in my Latter-day life, I think the biggest thing is that we're here. I'm back. And so grateful to be back. So happy to be with all of you. And uh, this got me pondering, why, why am I back? And I, I wish I had a quick, simple answer about why we're bringing the show back. I didn't have a good, quick, simple answer as to why we 
ended the show in October, and unfortunately I just don't have a quick, simple answer now. But I'll share with you a couple of things that have happened over the uh, the past four months. First of all, I prayed and felt strongly in October that it was time, that the season was over and it was time to, uh, to end the run of the show. I did leave the door open that uh, we could bring it back, but I, I didn't think we would uh, anytime soon. As I had mentioned, I got a new calling. I'm working in the High Council with YSAs, and oh, what a blessing that is. It's just so incredible to be with these valiant spirits. And there was just a lot going on with work and uh, everything else. I just felt like it was time. The interesting thing is I still feel that was right. I still feel, and I, I don't know why it was time. I just felt that it was time to do it. And uh, then over the next, uh, the past four months, I have really missed this. I've missed my interaction with all of you. I've missed my Monday mornings of seeing comments on how amazing our guests are. I've missed talking to guests. And I've I've had uh, people reach out, not knowing the show had ended, wanting to be guests. And I'll read their story and go, oh, I want to hear that story. <laughs> I really want to sit down and do it. And I think it took walking away to recognize what a part of my soul this show has become. What an incredible blessing it's been to sit down with all of these guests and hear their testimonies, and then to hear from all of you. I am a listener, too, to this show. I love hearing the guests' stories. And you are my friends. When I say hello, friends, I mean it. And there are some of you, it's funny, I know you by name from social media. We've never met before, but I know you because you send me awesome messages and questions, and this was such a big part of my life. And over the past four months, there I don't think a single week has gone by that I haven't gotten a message from someone, either an email or something on Instagram or Facebook. It, it seems like it was just constant of people letting me know how much they appreciated the show and how much they miss it. And every time I would read it, I'd think, yeah, I miss it too. And I'd go, why did we end it? (laughs) But it really did feel right. And then I started praying about, should we bring it back? I didn't want to take it lightly. And I started to really feel like, yeah, it it was time. It was nice to have that little bit of a break. And I realigned some things in my life. But it's time to bring it back. And I was on the fence just a little bit, but just about decided when I got a letter from uh, a friend, someone I grew up with in California, and uh, she is a, an amazing soul, and you know who you are. And this letter uh, touched my heart in such a way that I, it felt like such a strong, overwhelming answer that, yes, let's do the show. I still don't fully understand really why it was time to wrap it up in October and why it's time to start now. It's not like, hey, I made a mistake. It was the right time, and now this is the right time and the right thing. And uh, I pray that I'll better understand it as we go on through time. The one thing that I do fully understand is just how grateful I am (laughs) for all of you. Those messages of what this means to you, because it is, as I mentioned before, a lot of work, but it's such a blessing when I hear how it's touched your lives. Uh, I'm very, very grateful for all of you, the listeners, and so grateful for people like Tamara and the other 156 plus guests that uh, we've had on the show. 
and we look forward to so, so many more. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day Life. Thank you so much for tuning in. Like I said, it just means the world to me. If you really enjoy the show, if especially if there's an episode that you love specifically, if you could share it on your social media, share it with a friend. If you know someone in need of a, an uplifting message, sharing the show is, is really the best thing you can do for us. And then the other thing is uh, just leaving us a review. Those five-star reviews... Uh, help us uh, to really get the word out there. And when people are searching for uplifting content, it uh, really helps them to find it. Well, I think that's all I've got for you this week. So until we meet again, which will be next Monday, (laughs) there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 